yeah, it's good to be speaking. It's a while since I've been in this role. Usually you see me up there. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Brett, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Jay is on vacation um, until Tuesday, so he won't be with us tonight. Um, but we have been in a series uh, called Romans, where we are working through the book called Romans. And uh, it's been cool because we haven't ever spent this much time in one book as a church as we have with Romans. And so I've really been enjoying just being able to dig a little bit deeper into a book. And my hope is that for all of us, as we continue to go through it, that we'll actually be able to get like a deeper understanding, that it just wouldn't be surface level, that we actually go a bit deeper as we're spending time with this book. But if you are new, just to catch you up really quick, Romans is a letter that was written by Paul to the church in Rome. And the church in Rome was a little unique in the fact that it had um, a whole bunch of Jewish people in it and a whole bunch of Gentiles which would be basically you and I. The Jews were considered kind of God's chosen people. Um, but then Jesus came on the scene, and then everybody had the opportunity to become one of God's people. And, uh, but there's a lot of kind of disagreement and some conflict because you have two very different groups of people trying to do church together, and it's been a bit of a mess. So Paul is writing into that context. And uh, for us tonight, we're going to be jumping into Romans 9, which if you've been around the church for a while, you might know that Romans 9 is an interesting section of Scripture. And we're going to try and get through the entire chapter, which is a bit of a task for us tonight, uh, but we will try to get through it, and I think there's some really good stuff in there um, that God would have us learn and understand. The other piece I'll just say before we jump right in is Romans 9 is one of those books of the Bible where people debate and have a lot of different ideas on what it talks about, and there's a bunch of different ideas that kind of get brought out in this book that we won't even have time to go into in depth. But there is a general thing that Paul is trying to say, a concise, some concise things that he's saying with this chapter, and um, I think we'll find that really helpful. So tonight's going to be a little bit more teaching, and we're just going to drill through a bunch of this stuff, um, but I think we'll find it really beneficial. To really understand what's going on, and before I do that, I'm going to put a timer on my phone, because if I don't, we'll be uh, in trouble. This is, this is for your sake here. Um, Romans 9 is written specifically to the Jews, and so uh, I don't think there's too many Jews in the room today. If there is, great. But there is a history that is kind of all in a meshed with this text. And if we don't fully understand the context of which he's writing, we won't fully understand what's going on in the text. So just to give a little bit of background, um, you might know that God created the world, and he created it good. And then right away, humanity messed it up. Humanity sinned. Sin came into the world. And God realized that, okay, I've got to do something to solve this problem. And right from the beginning, God decided that he wanted to solve this sin problem, this separation from God problem, and he actually wanted to use people to do it. And so we see this, this guy named Abraham comes on the scene. And uh, Abraham, Abraham was the guy that God gave this promise to. And the promise was that he would make him into a great nation, that he'd have all kinds of descendants, that he would be blessed, and that through him, ultimately, the entire world would be blessed. So from the beginning, God chooses Abraham and his descendants to be kind of his people, the way that he's going to represent himself to the world through this group called, called what becomes Israel, but the Jews. The thing that's interesting is uh, the Jews have a bit of an interesting journey. It starts off really nice. You can imagine if God spoke to you and said, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of descendants, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you into a great nation, and through you, the entire world is going to be blessed. You can imagine that probably would be a pretty cool thing to hear pretty positive. I imagine the things that you're thinking now are like, man, this is incredible. But pretty quickly on, uh, Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. 
Um, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. This is where we get Israelites. And uh, it goes from there. Uh, Jacob has Joseph. You might know the story of Joseph in Egypt. But what follows after that is the Israelites end up in captivity as slaves in Egypt. And so just a few generations in, after God made this big promise to Abraham, the Israelites are stuck, enslaved to the Egyptian empire. And you can imagine them thinking, man, this whole promise thing is not going so well. This is not exactly going how we expected it would. And you can imagine there's probably a lot of disappointment, a lot of confusion of wondering, hey, God, you said all these things, but it doesn't really seem like you're coming through in the way that we thought you would. But it keeps going. Eventually, God brings them out of captivity in Egypt. Things are good again. Then they end up in in the wilderness for 40 years. They end up in, in wars and battles, some of which go well, some of which do not. But eventually, God brings them into their, their promised land, this land that he'd promised to them, and it's, it's good again. And then, as people make bad decisions, as we all often do, things get a little sketchy again, and Israel ends up getting conquered, and they get sent into exile. They're taken away from their homeland and taken into Babylon. And again, you can imagine, it's like, oh man, things were just starting to get good again. And they all, even generations later, they know what this promise from God was, but again, you, you must kind of feel for them. They're thinking like, man, this is not going how we expected it would. I don't understand why God is allowing all this to happen to his people. Eventually, they're allowed back home, and, and years and years, generations later, Jesus comes on the scene. And the time Jesus comes on the scene, the Jews are being oppressed by the Romans. And they had this idea of a Messiah to come, and that this Messiah was going to free them from the Romans, that he was going to raise up an army, conquer the Romans, and, and make Israel into this great nation again. Because th- that was always the idea, that God was going to make Israel into a great nation. So when Jesus comes on the scene, and they're expecting a warrior king, but he comes in as a suffering servant who lays down his life and dies, you can imagine them thinking, man, this is not exactly what we signed up for. This isn't going how we hoped. This is not the picture of blessing and promise that, that we kind of had always hoped for, always thought was going to be true. Why is God doing it this way? And to make matters even hit home a little bit more, you have God's chosen people. Jesus comes on the scene. And now all of a sudden, everybody else is invited into the people of God. So you have this group of people that for generations has sacrificed, has gone through hardship, has, has faced all these things in their life. And now all of a sudden... Everybody else is invited into being the people of God. They're not feeling so special anymore either. This promise that was for Israel is now being extended to everybody else. And you can imagine if you were a Jew thinking, man, I've sacrificed all this. And now you're saying everybody else gets to just get in, even though they didn't do any of the work. And you can imagine that there's just like, there's, a, there's probably a discontent there. There's a heaviness. There's a, there's a wondering, why did God do it this way? Did, did all the work that I put in, did it not matter for anything? Now that everybody else just gets to join right in. And even, even the group specifically that's in Rome, that Paul is specifically writing to, um, they were in Rome building a church, and Rome, the, the Roman Empire kicked them out of Rome. And now they're invited back. They're back in their church. But now all these Gentiles, these other people, I've kind of taken over all the roles in the church and are leading the church and having good ministry. And the Jews are kind of left thinking, like, what is actually our part in all of this? This does not seem like what we signed up for. This is, seems very different than what we expected. And this is kind of the context that Paul is writing into. But the thing that is kind of neat is I think the Jews felt this way, Israel felt this way, but I think sometimes we feel this way too. This is a tension that we sometimes struggle with. 
Because there might be things in your life that you've invested time, energy, money into that maybe didn't have the result that you thought it would. Maybe there's relationships that you've invested in and it didn't turn out the way that you hoped. Or maybe even in the church, maybe even with God, you've lived your life for God for years, expecting him to bless you in certain ways and he hasn't. Maybe you've sacrificed and served God in certain ways, expecting to see him do things in your life and it hasn't happened. And maybe you've seen him heal people that aren't as committed as you and you ask why. Why did God do it for them and not for me? Maybe you've, you've given to the church, you've tithed, you've sacrificed, you read your Bible, you pray, and you ask God for blessings, but maybe he's blessing somebody down the road more than you, and you're asking, God, I feel like I'm doing all the right things. Why is it not having the result that I thought it would? Because God, I thought if I invested in my relationship with you that it would have these outcomes over here. And we sometimes struggle with this stuff of, of God not working in the way that we thought he would, or maybe even the way that we thought he said he would. So I think we can actually relate a little bit to what's going on here. So this is the context to which Paul is writing. So we jump into Romans chapter 9, verse 1. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. When Paul says kinsmen, he's referring to the Jews. And basically what Paul is saying, he's basically starting off what's going to be a pretty heavy, a heavy section of the letter by saying, my heart is actually for you. Paul is saying that even the, th the things I'm going to say is difficult, my, ultimately my heart and my goal is that you would experience the life-giving love of Jesus in your own life. And he uses some pretty extreme language to say to the extent that he would go to accomplish that. He's just using it as an example because he knows that ultimately there's nothing that he can do to add to what Jesus has already done. But his heart is there. He's saying, if there's anything that I could do to convince you to, to make it so that you can have a relationship with God, he's saying, I would do it. So that's his heart as he starts this off. He's coming to them as their pastor. We continue verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belongs the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is Jesus, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This is just a list of the things that, that the Jews cared an awful lot about. This is their heritage. And there's tons we could unpack there, but we won't for tonight. But this is where Romans 9 starts to get interesting. Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this next time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And, and just to give context to what's going on here, is that God had promised to Abraham that he would make him into a great nation. But time starts going on and Abraham's not having a kid. And so he starts thinking, okay, man, uh, maybe I need to take this into my own hands. So he ends up having a child with one of their slave girls um, and he, he births a son and then God, this is where God comes in, and this is where it says, so Isaac, the, the, the first son that he had with the slave girl's name was Ishmael. And typically, everything would flow through the firstborn. 
But the verse here, it says, though through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Not long after that, he had God actually, through Sarah, who was his wife, birthed him a son named Isaac. But he's saying, basically he's saying that God's choosing, the way that this all goes, isn't necessarily in the way that you would expect it to. Um, so he says, For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now really quick, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Is God speaking? How does that sit with you? There's a lot of things in Romans 9 that from a surface level reading don't sit well. And there's a lot of assumptions that we could make if we read this without understanding the context of what is actually going on. It's interesting that this kind of language actually comes out somewhere else as well. It comes out in the Gospels, where Jesus says, if you do not hate your mother and father, then you have no part of me. What's Jesus saying when he says that? What's Paul saying when he writes this here about God? Well, it's that he's actually using an exaggeration to make a point. He's saying that in choosing one, ultimately you're hating all others. When Jesus is saying that, he's saying, you have to choose me above everything else. And in choosing me, it's as if you're just giving up everything else. It's not that you actually are. Maybe another example of this would be if you marry somebody, if a man marries a woman, he is choosing that woman, he is loving that woman, and in a sense, hating all others. It's not actually that it's hate that's going on, but it's that the contrast is dramatic. And Paul is using exaggeration to emphasize the, contra uh, the contrast. It's basically Jacob I loved. Jacob I chose is what God is saying. Esau, I didn't. I chose Jacob for a purpose. And that specific purpose, I did not choose Esau for. That's just to clarify that point. But there's some interesting stuff on how God works in this passage. Another word that jumps out at us that is often, again, hotly debated is the word election. And what does it mean that God chooses? And just for the sake of tonight, election used in this context is basically saying that God has a purpose and he works out that purpose through specific people. And that specific people are called to specific things. And that it is entirely within God's right to choose certain people for certain tasks. God has called all of us to certain things. What he has called me to is different than what he has called you to. And the things that he's called you to are not things that I can do if God has not called me to do them. And we don't have time to dig into all the theology around this, but election here, it's, it's election unto a purpose not election unto salvation. He's making the point that this kind of election has nothing to do with anything we do. The verse in 11 is interesting. It says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And this is actually a phenomenal reminder for us today that God doesn't choose us based on what we bring to the table. God has a calling on all of your lives, but he doesn't call you to it based on what you can do. And in fact, if he was calling us based on what we could do, he probably wouldn't be calling any of us because <laughs> there's not a whole lot we can do on our own apart from God. But the thing that I find encouraging this, about this is that God doesn't call us based on what we can bring to the table, which means he also doesn't dismiss us based on what we can't bring to the table. And I think for a lot of us, there's a lot of us that feel like 
we don't have anything to offer. Or that God can't use us because we don't bring enough to the table. We don't have enough to offer. And we get into this point of feeling like, how is God ever going to use me? Well, fortunately for us, God doesn't choose us based on what we can do. God chooses us based on his plan, his purposes, and anything that he calls you to, he'll give you the strength to do it. But it's not necessarily about you. And this is a point that Paul is just trying to drive home throughout this entire passage, is that ultimately, it's actually not about us and what we can accomplish on our own. It's about God's purposes, God's plans, the things that he wants to do. It's about his story, not ours. It's about his plans, not ours. And God is fully in control of all of that. But he invites us into it. But let's keep going. We'll, we'll come back to that a little bit. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion. I'll say that again. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be, might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Let's pause here for a second. Another interesting piece. What does it mean that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? This is another piece where we sometimes get caught up. But if you remember back when Pastor Jason was first started kicking off this series on Romans, in Romans 1, there's a line that's used over and over again. I don't know if you recall it or not. But there's this line where it says, and he gave them over. It's that sometimes God actually lets us make our own decisions. And sometimes our own decisions take us further away from God. And sometimes when we are rejecting God, he says, you know what? The best thing I can do for you right now is to let you go. Let you make your own decisions. It's not necessarily that he's pushing you that way, but it's that ultimately our decisions, making them on our own, can sometimes lead us into pretty messy places. And the hardening of our heart, the more we make decisions away from God, the more our heart is hardened. The piece that's interesting about this passage is often we, we view the hardening language as the active language, and we, use, we view mercy as passive. But in fact, it's quite the other way around. Hardening is simply just what happens when we make our own decisions. Mercy is when God actively steps in to make a difference. See, these passages are far more about God's mercy than they are about anything else. And we sometimes get that a little confused. Mercy is active. Hardened is not. But we'll keep going. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But this is a convicting line. But who, oh, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? This is a reference to Jeremiah that you can research on your own time. We don't have time for tonight. But then he goes on to say, what if God... What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. 
You see, the whole idea of God calling us not based on what we bring to the table, that's actually like, that's pretty positive. We like that. I think for the most part, we like that God's not depending on us, that he invites us in, not because of us, but in spite of us. That's like, that's, that, that feels like good news right off the bat. But this next little bit, maybe we struggle with it a little bit more. And it's this idea that ultimately God can do whatever he wants. That God can and will act freely. See, Paul is saying, what if God did all this? Isn't he allowed to? And isn't there something in us that actually like pushes back on that? We actually, that there's almost something in us that doesn't feel right in that. That God can just do whatever he wants. And it's interesting that I think sometimes we feel like we know better than God if we're being like truly honest deep down. And I think we actually sometimes put God on trial for the things that he does or he says. There's things that we see God do and we're like, man, I don't know about that. That doesn't, fe- that doesn't sit right with me. That doesn't feel right. And we see this all around us in the culture that we live in today is this idea that we feel like we know better than God. Our culture would say that, that we, as, we as, this, as a culture and as a society, we understand morality better than God does. So we'll make our own rules. We understand justice better than God does. So we'll make our own rules. We understand love better than God does. So we'll make our own rules. And we again and again are saying, we understand this stuff better than God does. So we're not going to go to God as the basis for what is right or wrong. We're not going to go to God on the, for the basis of what is just and what is moral. We're going to do that on our own. But the root of that is ultimately thinking that we know better than God. Something that uh, I I, I enjoy listening to podcasts, and so I'm always looking for different kinds of podcasts to listen to. But one thing I've been caught up on lately is is just listening to a whole bunch of stuff on decision-making and, like, how to make good decisions and how do people who are really successful, how do they make good decisions? How do business leaders make good decisions? How do parents make good decisions? And there's a whole bunch of psychology and, and, and there's tons of stuff behind making good decisions. But here's the thing with making a good decision. You can make the best decision ever with all the information that you have, but if you don't have all the information, it's probably not going to be the best decision. You can be the best at at taking information and figuring out what the best course of action is, but if there is a piece of information that is missing, there's a good chance you made a bad decision. And for us to assume that we can make better decisions than God is to assume that we have the big picture in mind, is to assume that we know everything that there is to know. And I think there's a humbling piece in what Paul is writing here to say that maybe you actually don't know as well as you think. And this is convicting to me. I'm not speaking to you. This is like, this is to me. That, that God knows better than I do. And that for me, it's actually, it's quite arrogant for me to, to assume that I know better than God. Because that is for me to assume that I know the details better than he does. But the God who created everything, who sits outside of time, who sees my thoughts, sees your thoughts, sees the future, sees the past, he is making decisions on what is right, what is wrong, what is moral, what is good, what is loving. And he's making those decisions and he's put them in his word And yet we find ourselves putting God on trial, questioning if whether or not he did was good. It's interesting. It's something to think about. It's something to reflect on, on how often do we question God on whether or not what he's done is good. I love verse 14. It says, what shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. Are you okay with God ultimately being God? 
There's a few more verses here as we close out this chapter. Paul goes on to, to argue his point a little bit further, and he uses Old Testament references for that. The first is in Hosea. It says, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it, where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And this is an incredibly, incredibly encouraging passage. Because this is saying that there are some people that maybe have always been said to them that you'll, you'll never be a child of God. God will never accept you. You're too far gone. You're not good enough. And right here he was saying, even those who, who were, it was said about them, they'll never make it. God's saying, no, 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 no. That is no longer the case. There is hope for everybody. Nobody is too far gone. And then he quotes in, from Isaiah and it says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would be like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In short, what he's saying there is that if God didn't step in to the world and show mercy to work through people, that we'd just all be in trouble that if God fully just left us up to our own decisions, our own devices, that, that we'd be in a mess. Verse 30, as we finish out the chapter. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, and as it is written, another Old Testament quote, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So what's the entirety of what's going on here in Romans 9? Was that you have an entire group of Israelites, of Jews, who have lived their entire life under a law of having to do certain things in order to make themselves right before God. And now Jesus has stepped on the scene, and he is saying that actually the things that you do, they actually don't matter. The things that you do don't gain you anything before God. Because Jesus is saying there's actually nothing that you could ever do on your own to make yourself right before me. He's saying that actually this comes through faith in believing in me. His emphasis is on relationship. It's not about the things that you do or don't do. And so you can imagine for all these Jews that have spent their entire life doing all these things, thinking that it's going to have some kind of result, and now all of a sudden it's not necessary. There's a, there's a pride piece that just comes out and say, for them of saying like, man, we, we put in all this effort and now it doesn't matter. Now there's a different way. Now everybody else is just being in, invited right in. It would have been pretty, pretty dramatic. But the emphasis of this really is that works don't work. The things that we do don't make us right before God. The whole piece with Abraham was that Abraham had, there's a descent, the lineage that was tracked all the way from Abraham all the way to Jesus. You can track it. But it's saying that, that just because you are a blood descendant of Abraham, 
who was called, like, your descendants will be the people of God. Just because you're a blood descendant doesn't actually make you right before God. Just because you followed the law or tried to doesn't make you right before God. It's through faith. It's through believing in Jesus and what he did. So this is the tension that Paul is speaking into. But because the Jews felt that it was going to be all kinds of bell mean for us tonight. It's that I think for a lot of us, and, and yeah, the band can come up if they'd like. I think even though we know that, we, that Jesus doesn't depend on the things that, that, that we do, even though we like intellectually know that we don't bring something to the table, I think there's a lot of us who have lived our lives thinking that we have to do certain things in order to be right before God. There are many of us who have done certain things and expected certain results, and then when God doesn't come through, it's like, what's going on? And this even happens when we serve God, when we do things for God. Because right from the very beginning, God chose to work through people. But we have to ask the question, why did God choose to work through people? Why does God choose to work through you and I? Why does he, why does he do it that way? Because God actually doesn't need you or I. God can fulfill his purposes whenever he wants with a snap of a finger. So why does he choose to use us? It's because he cares about the relationship. And here's how I would describe it. When I was a kid, I used to love helping my dad out with projects around the house, as many of you probably did. Or maybe you're the dad. You've got a a son or a daughter that helps you out around the house. And I remember helping with projects, but if we're being honest, I was not actually a help with those projects when I was young. I did not bring anything to the table. In fact, I probably made it a whole lot harder. So why was I invited into that? Well, it's because there is a joy that comes from relationship. The blessing isn't in the task going better. It probably didn't. The blessing's not in the outcome. The blessing's not in anything that comes from those decisions or those actions. The blessing comes from, there is a joy that comes from relationship. And we can do all the things for God we want. And if we don't do it with him, we've completely missed the point. Even me being up here on stage tonight, this is something I was processing through as I was writing this was that I feel a certain amount of pressure of like, man, I've got to speak well. I've got to make sure it's understandable. I've got to try to make it engaging. And I feel all this pressure of trying to, to, to almost like do a good sermon and then ask, hey God, would you help me out? And so often I think we ask God to help us with our things. When in reality, that's not actually what's going on. In fact, if you got anything out of tonight at all, it's not because of me. It's because God wanted you to get something out of it. And he caused that to happen in spite of me, not because of me. God invites you and I to serve alongside of him, to see the world come to a a life-giving knowledge of who Jesus is, that we can all enter into relationship with him. God wants to use you and I to see that happen in the world, but it's not because he needs us to. It's because there is a joy in relationship that we all have access to and we all long for. You see, often we think about the things that we do for God and we have specific things like, maybe if I do this, God will will bless me. But here's the thing, God did not promise us finances. He did not promise us great relationships. He did not promise us great jobs. He did not promise us any of those kinds of physical, earthly things. So what's his promise? His promise is joy. And we experience joy when we partner with our Father in his plans. And that's why he invites us in.
just to close, Paul starts with kind of expressing his heart at the beginning of chapter nine, and he closes at the beginning of chapter 10 by expressing his heart again. And we've already read so many verses, like what's four more verses, right? He says, brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. This is Paul's heart. This is also God's heart. His desire is that the, the Jews, those who think that they have to do certain things to be right before God, his desire is that they would be saved. For those of us today that we think we need to do certain things to be right before God, his desire is that we would be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And this is such a challenge and such a grace. So for some of us, the challenge tonight is simply recognizing that God, God's got a plan and his plan is bigger than you and I and God understands everything that's going on and God is God and I am not. And maybe there's a point of reflection there for some of us. For some of us, we have lived our lives doing things for God and expecting certain results and often being disappointed with the outcomes. The invitation is to, to not necessarily go and do different, but to go and think different. Maybe it's to reflect and say, these things I do for God, why do I actually do them? Do I do them because I experience joy doing them with God or do I do them because I think I'm gonna get something from it? God wants you to experience joy in your life and he knows it only comes through relationship. And then lastly, I'd say, he, start, he ends with, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For some of us tonight, this is an invitation to believe. It's the first step in it all to believe that Jesus died for my sins. He lived a good life because he knew I never could. He died for my sin because somebody needed to die for my sin. We're gonna sing a song, and so my invitation to you is just to reflect, say, are you okay with God being God? Are you okay with serving alongside God, not for the blessings that come with it, not for the sense of satisfaction, fulfillment, but trusting that, God wants to give you joy through it. Father God, thank you just for your, for your word. I pray that you would um, even just be speaking in our minds right now, the things that we need to hear. You're a good God. You invite us into relationship. You don't depend on what we bring to the table and for that we are thankful. Thank you that we don't need to be enough, that you were enough for us. Thank you that you invite us in, in Jesus' name, amen.